Hello. Hello. Um, Hungry Ghost episode three. Um, and we're going to talk this week about food taboos. Ooh, Ooh. spooky. Yeah. Um, which, for anthropology nerds like myself, <laughs> big topic. Um, taboo in general is a big topic because, like, virtually all um, societies are kind of structure around taboos including food taboos as a mm. way of like organizing themselves around what's acceptable and what isn't acceptable um and yeah they tend to they revolve around this idea that breaking a taboo will ha- have negative consequences for the individual and also like on the societal level so one of the most famous taboos or one of the most examples of famous examples of breaking a taboo is adam and eve Mm. The Garden of Eden. Yes. Told not to eat the fruit. Original they sin. Ate the fruit, and then then look what happened. <laughs> Original sin, expelled from um, from paradise, and all that jazz. And then there's another biblical one: is um, Lot and his wife mm. were commanded. They were told to flee uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. Yes. When they're being um, destroyed, and they were told not to look. And Lot's wife looked, and what happened? She turned, turned into a pillar, pillar of salt. salt. <laughs> Uh, so do you remember doing that again in a half? Yeah. So, yeah, in both cases, it's about like, because obviously those are religious examples, it extends beyond that to society in general. It's about authority, social control. Mm-hmm. Um, there are rules and there are, there are consequences for breaking them. So it's like, this is what happens to you if you break a taboo. Um, and so another very famous uh, example when it comes to food taboos particularly is um, the list of forbidden foods in the Old Testament in Leviticus, which are like kind of the basis for uh, the kosher food laws in Judaism, yep. um, which obviously have a parallel in um, Islam with what's halal and what's haram uh, when it comes to food. Um, so for the authors of Leviticus, foods they weren't allowed to eat include pigs, horses, shellfish, um, and I quote, whatever crawls on its belly, whatever goes on all fours, or whatever has many feet among all creeping things that creep on the earth. Ooh. Um, so that got me to thinking. Yeah. What would be on my list of forbidden foods if I were to start a death cult, which I may, which I still know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I've got I, this was quite a difficult exercise for me, as I feel like it probably would yeah. be for you as well, mm. because it's so you like about us, but we're not fussy eaters. <laughs> no, probably anything. As um, as. We've been witness to so far in this yeah. podcast, and we'll probably get into a little bit later on today. In fact, to the extent that, because a lot of the reason why pigs are um, considered taboo animals to eat in lots of societies is because they're considered unclean because mm. they will literally will eat anything. Yes, I feel like we would probably fall into the same category. <laughs> we would not be kosher. We would not be kosher. No, um, but I've landed on Richmond sausages, mm-hmm. not the veggie ones. No, they are actually quite nice, but the meat. Quotation marks, meat. Um, also, hakar, probably pronouncing that wrong, but fermented shark, which I mm. had in Iceland uh, not so long ago, which, I mean, they serve it to you in a little, like, sealed pot, because in tiny little cubes on cocktail sticks, because the sm- and you have to open it, take them out, because the smell is, it just smells like bleach or like hair dye, yeah. and it obviously puts everyone else in the restaurant off their food. So you have to take it out, just do that thing where like you kind of close your nose off from your mouth, eat them, and it's perfectly doable to eat them, but it just is like, there's no good reason to be eating them. <laughs> it originates, I think, in, um, so it's a fermented Greenland shark, and the story goes there were some fishermen whose boat, uh, who, they were stranded in the sea, and they managed to catch, they were desperate for food, they managed to catch a Greenland shark, um, but they tried eating the flesh as it was right. and it made them sick because it's got so much ammonia in it. Right. So they left it to rot and then out of desperation they ended up eating the rotten shark meat which gets this horrible smell of like like I say like hair dye or bleach because it's the, all the ammonia, the ammonia. releasing from mm. it. So and then they found that they could eat it like it wouldn't kill it wouldn't them. Kill it wouldn't kill But you so, wouldn't then take it home and say hey guys scrap the Sunday roast mm, we're having this instead. Exactly, it's like that's yeah. the last resort sort of thing. Yeah. So now they probably just serve it to like idiot tourists. I think they yeah. do, maybe on like special, I have a feeling they, it's like a festive thing or right. like, like festivals and stuff. They'll have it with, um, there's like a schnapps thing they serve it with, which is, which is quite nice. But um, yeah, 
that's just going on the list because it's just completely unnecessary. <laughs> Sounds horrible. Um, and then thirdly, activated charcoal croissants. Mm. Or really anything containing activated charcoal. Unless you're like... Because they use activated charcoal for... If you overdose on like yeah. drugs, it yeah. helps get stuff out of your system. It purifies uh, yeah. the body and is made in, it's used in drinks production as well for purifying like vodka and things like that. And then some hipster like vegans have decided <laughs> that oh, it really purifies bad things out of your body. But, but as far as I can tell, it actually takes good stuff out of your body yeah. if you're not Put, like unwell. Putting it in foods is absolute nonsense. And so they're because they're activated charcoal croissants because they're just fucking dumb. Yeah, going on my list. Um, <laughs> I don't know about you, if you have any... Yeah, um, so similar to the activated charcoal, I certainly think um, rainbow bagels yeah. do not deserve to exist in anyone. It's lip service to the LGBT <laughs> Anyone who... I mean, I'm not coming at this from an anti-LGBT <laughs> angle. I'm coming at it from a... Like, there's nothing wrong with a regular standard bagel. Yeah. Like, it doesn't need to be pumped full of dyes and e-numbers it doesn't taste any different it's Agreed. just a load of nonsense yeah um if you want stuff rainbow fine do it at home yeah um and then uh matcha i've got simply no time for it i think it just tastes like eating grass and i can't be doing with it yeah yeah we've uh, had well, i was going to say had our fingers burned by matcha mm, certainly yeah. had the roofs of our mouths burned by <laughs> matcha and again when uh, we went to japan uh, not to go on about it, but um, we, when we went to Japan, we did a, a tea ceremony, um, which involves matcha tea. But they part of the thing is you have they they turn the bowl they have the tea's in like a bowl. Mm. They give it they hand it to you. The ritual is like they turn it three times, th- yeah, yeah, a certain direction, and then pass it to you. And you have to drink it, and then you I think you pass it back and turn it, and then do yeah. it. But the upshot is you have to drink the whole thing in like two goes. Freshly hot boiling and it's tea. It's really, really hot because like, <laughs> yeah. there's obviously no milk in it or anything. Um, yeah, yeah, stupid, load of rubbish. Yeah, talking of um, kosher and things as well, I think mm. there's a very interesting. If you if you get into the kosher rules, very interesting uh, things when you're starting to look what isn't what is and isn't kosher. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for example. Uh, bears are not kosher, but giraffes are. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know how many of them are, are floating around uh, ancient Israel, well, but yeah, it's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> think, were they maybe? Well, I can imagine maybe bears were, but not giraffes. Mm, surely, yeah, surely not. Um, yeah, do you reckon they were rules that were kind of added at a later? I think it's all to do with the amount of hooves and what, right, right, what right. Yeah, if yeah. they're chewing the cud. Yeah, I think owls are specified as being not mm. allowed, and also bats, yes. which I can um, kind of. I mean, eating bat has become has been very much in the spotlight in the last few years because of those ridiculous things that people said. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's where COVID came from, which obviously uh, isn't probably true in itself. But uh, I've eaten bat. I had a. I stayed at a hotel in Manado, which is in Sulawesi in Indonesia. Mm. Um, where eating bat is a part of the uh, Minahasan cuisine, I think it's called, which is like the local cuisine. Um, and I was staying in a hotel and I went down in the morning, there was fruit bat at the breakfast buffet. Jesus. <laughs> the breakfast buffet. And it was like, oh. it kind of, yeah, well, it's like, it kind of, I guess in like a curry sort of sauce mm. type stuff. Um, but the way it was presented, it wasn't just chunks of meat, it was, it was like leathery wings oh, and everything. So what you're saying is you are patient zero. Of yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> had a long incubation period, uh, about three years, but yeah, um, it's not just foods, of course. Absolutely not. Been banned over the years, prohibited. Uh, yeah. What are we drinking today? Today we have um, a lovely bottle of absinthe, mm. which um, it's Lafay Absinthe Superiore. Butchered that pronunciation, Parisian. Your French seems to have deserted you <laughs> <laughs> momentarily. Um, and I mean, the reason we've chosen absinthe is it's probably one of the most controversial drinks products out there. Yeah, uh, has a long history of myth and legend associated with it uh, that goes back hundreds of years, particularly due to the uh, inclusion of the uh of wormwood in in the mix um in the distillation process mm. so wormwood um 
contains a chemical called thujon or thujon, um, which creates hallucinations if taken in abundant quantities. Uh, so that's where that thing. Comes so that's from. where that thing comes from. In absent, well, people say that absinthe causes hallucinations, and they say there's the green fairy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, nonsense. That's what you'd see. <laughs> that's what you'd see. <laughs> Absolute nonsense. Absolute nonsense. But they, the, the actual chemical. Is so in such diluted quantities in in absinthe that right. it can't cause hallucinations. Well, is wormwood a type of wood? It's a type of wood, yeah, right, okay. a plant. Yeah. Um, but that hasn't stopped people over the years associating it with with that particular mm. uh, ability to to make people mad, to drive people crazy. Um, there was an interesting man, a uh, French man in the eighteen hundreds, um, called butcher some French again. Uh, Dr. Magnan, um, he took a particular dislike to absinthe um, and it's, it's part of the reason almost that it became outlawed um, across the world um, later or in the early uh, 20th century. So he believed that absinthe actually had the ability to rot your brain from the inside out, um, more so than actual alcohol uh, or just plain ethanol, um, it was something that was inherent to absinthe that would do this, uh, that being the wormwood and the, and the chemical compounds associated with it. And what he said was uh, he, he developed a term um, called absinthism, similar to alcoholism. He was like, it's a step beyond alcoholism. It's, it's something more, it's something more crazed, more um, chemically induced by this, this, this thujone compound. He um, tested his theory by he... Um, put raw or like thujone oil um, on plates um, and he put a guinea pig, a mouse, oh, sorry, a guinea pig, a cat and a dog um, in kind of sealed chambers with these plates of this thujone oil and he put another guinea pig in a sealed chamber just with ethanol and so obviously the vapours would kind of rise and you'd see what happened to the animals when they were kind of inhaling the pure... Um, uh, fumes of these chemicals yeah. and then the the three animals that were inhaling the thujone um, went absolutely ballistic like barking, meowing, going absolutely crazy the one that was drinking alcohol just or sniffing alcohol just like went to sleep um, and the ones that were drinking thujone went absolutely ballistic went crazy and then died and he said this was proof that absinthism was a real thing and is distinct from alcoholism Um and that uh, that was also inherent in absinthe, and that's why people shouldn't drink absinthe. Um, what scientifically, this is nonsense because he was doing extreme levels of this compound that's in in very very low amounts within uh, within actual absinthe. But that didn't stop people kind of really getting on this bandwagon of at the time in the eighteen hundreds, people starting to say actually absinthe should be banned. We need to get rid of this thing. Um, it got caught up in the whole temperance movement mm. um, and became intemperance. People were trying to ban alcohol completely, but it became a real figurehead as kind of the reasons why people should ban alcohol. And was one of the few alcohols that people directly targeted and said ban absinthe. Is um, this mainly because I'm I associate it very much with like nineteenth century France mm, and Paris yeah. and salons and yeah. stuff like that, but. It did ultimately get banned elsewhere, didn't it, as well? Yeah, well, the reason it eventually did get banned, uh, there was all this stuff going on in the 1800s, kind of temperance, this doctor doing these mad tests on animals. Um, and uh, towards the end of the, the 19th century in France, there was kind of this belief that this was what was caused, drinking absinthe was causing the, uh, decl- like the decline of the French people. Um, and in many, you know, those similar things were said kind of about alcohol all around the world at the time. Yeah, gin, was, in, the, yeah, in, the gin in the UK. Um, just alcohol in general in America before Prohibition. Mm-hmm. Um, but what really kind of uh, put the nail in the coffin, no pun intended, for absinthe was um, this, some horrific murders that happened in Switzerland. Sure. So a man, um, uh, his surname was Lanfrey, um went on an absolute bender, basically. He was drinking not only absinthe, but brandy and, and beer and wine and, and drank drank himself uh, blind, basically. Um, he murdered his family while he was drunk. Um, 
and he and he woke up and was like, I don't remember anything. The press that had already kind of been aware of this whole absinthe from what was this other conversation around it's got these psychological compounds, the temperance movement got onto the fact that he drunk some absinthe as part of that raging bender um, and was saying it's the absinthe is the problem. That's why he murdered his family, not the fact that he was clearly an alcoholic and an abusive, an abusive individual. And so and even in part of his trial, he said that it was the absinthe that made him do it. So he was innocent. Um, luckily, he got found guilty and was sent to prison. Right. Um, but that's when a, the, the press really latched onto this thing that absinthe caused this. It made him crazy. And they banned it all across Europe. Um, it then also subsequently got banned in the USA as well. Um, and so for most of the 20th century from kind of 1905 onwards it was banned everywhere pretty much except for the UK and Spain um, who continued to kind of make it in kind of small quantities and also there was some obviously illegal bootlegging from Spain into the rest of Europe particularly into France where they they missed it I guess Um, and it wasn't really only until the kind of the late 90s um, and early 2000s really when they started to actually test the science behind this and realised that there's not anywhere near enough of this compound in absinthe to cause any uh, psychological effects. Um, And the EU then at that stage lifted the ban and the US did shortly after. Mm -hmm. Um, But certainly, uh, you know, the biggest taboo has been banned for nearly 100 years across Europe um, because of these mad associations. It's like moral panic. Moral panic, exactly. And it says on the bottle... Rich in wormwood. Rich in wormwood. So, yeah. so they're still so, dining out on that. So they're still dining out on that. Even though, so the only active ingredient really is alcohol. Exactly. Um, there is a lot of it. Sixty-eight percent. Sixty-eight percent. Yeah, it's um, it's a heavy hitter. We don't. Uh, we've had to set ourselves some boundaries in this episode <laughs> because last week when we were drinking Goldwasser, we drank a whole. 70 cl bottle of it and it's 40 percent yeah over the course of the podcast so <laughs> we knew that when we decided we were going to do absinthe this week we thought um if we don't stop ourselves like by getting a smaller bottle which is what we've done then permanent brain injury may result <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, so yeah but we, we've tried we've prepared a couple of absinthe in what what we think is the traditional style mm, yeah we've mixed some sugar the, the absinthe with the uh with sugar and water and it creates a louche like what you get if you have uh, ouzo, ouzo or raki. Yeah, yeah. um, smells a lot like that. Slightly green louche in this case. I think that's the wormwood. Um, and it has that smell to it. Very aniseedy. Very aniseedy. Let's give it a go. It's nice. That's very nice. It's very much like ouzo. It's very much so. like ouzo. Yeah. Um, yeah. I like it. Very pleasant. Mm. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. Um, so, explaining food taboos. Mm. We, we touched on the um, the Jewish food laws and there are various um, sort of analogues to that in different traditions, but um, they seem pretty arbitrary at first glance. Yes. Like, why is it that whether or not something's clothed... Why that animal or, and why... Yeah. the curd or not yeah. or whatever. Um, and... Various people have tried to explain this in different ways uh, over the centuries. So um, Moses Maimonides, who's a 12th century Jewish philosopher, uh, he suggested that it had something to do with like an early attempt at understanding food hygiene. Right. Um, and uh, p- other people have kind of elaborated on that as well, saying that oh, you shouldn't eat... The reason shellfish is in it is because it spoils in the sun mm-hmm. quickly, which you know, it sort of makes sense. Makes sense. It do- also doesn't make sense for, you know, like there would have been lots of fishing communities on the coast where they were in yeah. fresh shellfish and stuff. And it's just yeah. like, um, so, but, but then other ones, there are some as well in different traditions, which have clearly are, have a basis in, in, um, medicine, if you like. So there's some traditional Hindu food taboos are centered about around the contamination of food with other people's saliva, right? which you can easily imagine came from, you know, they observe how illness spreads even if they didn't quite understand it. Yeah. Um, but my Maimonides also suggested that basically um, they were they were rules for the sake of having rules, yes. kind of thing. So yeah. um, he wrote, "These ordinances seek to train us in the mastery of our appetites. They come accustom us to restrain the growth of desire and disposition to consider the pleasure of eating as the end of man's existence. So they're rules for their own sake, um, because rules build character and discipline, and that's 
in an individual and also for a society. Yeah, um, is there an element of it? It creates tr- a tribe as well in that you're the tribe of people who have those rules yeah. and therefore you know you're different from yeah. those it's, other guys over the hill. It's an identity it's market. It's an identity market, yeah. yeah. So the point is that certain foods are p- permitted and certain foods are prohibited. It's like the question of which food is in which category is, is academic. Right? Yeah. Um, there's a classic um, anthropology book called Purity and Danger by Mary Douglas, and she, which is all about pollution and taboo and, and food taboo. She wrote a lot about these Jewish food laws. And she, her originally, she said, when the book first came out, her conclusion was that Jewish dietary laws forbid animals which don't fit easily into a category. Right. So pigs, for example, have cloven hooves, but they don't chew cud like the right. other ungulates yes. do. And so therefore they're out because they don't fit neatly into these categories. Um, something which we touched on, I think, last week, mm. but I've looked into a bit more, is this question of whether lab-grown meat would be considered, lab-grown well, meat of all kinds, but pork specifically would, would be considered kosher. Um, so I, I've looked into it a bit, um, and opinions differ. Rabbi, this was this is according to Israel Hayom, which is a newspaper in Israel. Rabbi David Stab insists that despite the fact the meat was grown in a laboratory, Jewish law considers it proper meat and will therefore be forbidden to eat it with dairy because Jewish food laws forbid yes. eating meat and dairy meat together. And dairy together. Yeah. Um, so, and then he continues... Therefore, in such a case, because the meat is defined as actual meat in Jewish law, cultured pork will not be permitted for consumption according to Jewish law. Interestingly, in twenty last year, 2022, um, it was decided by a group of rabbis that lab-grown beef or chicken could be eaten with dairy because it didn't count as proper meat. Right, okay. So different group um, of rabbis are saying something different but to this individual. That yeah. you still wouldn't eat lab-grown pork because it's still pork even if it's not considered like proper pork in the same way that they wouldn't eat um other pork products even though it's not pork meat kind of yeah is there an element of it because those it originally came from cells from pork even though it's tiny tiny quantities it's still a exactly a a pig somewhere along the line exactly and that's what they said in indonesia which is obviously a muslim country as well um so we're talking halal rather than um kosher but they decided that that exact thing that because yeah. it came from pork cells it like it doesn't matter whether um you know it's it as an animal or yeah not. um yeah uh, in, in qa as well they they did uh they released a paper from the college of sharia and islamic studies at q8 university they said that lab-grown meat can be halal for muslims as long as stem cells were taken from animals that muslims are allowed to eat right um and where the process does not involve materials that shouldn't be consumed by muslims such as blood blood serum or blood plasma um and they stress the importance of the animals from which cells should be alive or unharmed and slaughtered according to according to islamic tradition mm-hmm. so it's like you know they're obviously adjusting it I, I feel like sometimes with these things i mean i of course i understand why people kind of some people are thinking well can we they want to be told whether they can eat these yes. things or not sometimes i think there's an element of um they, like there's a refusal to acknowledge that it's like it's okay that your thousands year old religion doesn't acknowledge that lab-grown <laughs> yeah. <outgrown> meat. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting one. I think, in fact, in Tel Aviv, I think, one, like uh, there's a really famous restaurant where they serve lab-grown chicken. Like oh, maybe really? the most kind of developed restaurant right. in that sense. Um, so of course, there's there's with all these things, there's obviously a difference between what religious authorities say you can or can't do. It's not the, the final word. Or what what people ordinary do. people do. Mm. Um, and I guess the reality is that most Muslims and most Jews wouldn't eat lab-grown pork anyway because they just it's basically pork, isn't it? Yeah. They, just, <laughs> yeah. they don't eat pork, so it's yeah. as simple as that. Um, yeah, some some food taboos are interesting. It's not, not just about what's being eaten, but who's eating it. So um, among the Orang Asli people, are indigenous people in Malaysia, one of their taboos relates to the relationship between the size of the animal and the person eating it. So, wow. Because they believe that <laughs> everything has a spirit, every animal has a spirit, including humans and, and other animals. Um, and they think that the human being who is doing the eating, their spirit needs to be strong enough to handle the spirit of the animal <laughs> consumed. That's amazing. And so 
almost all meat is taboo for children, apart from small animals such as fish and frogs. But as they grow older, their diet is allowed to expand to include larger animals. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. Um, and the, and the physically bigger people, even if they're older, but say a short man and a tall man, is the tall man allowed to eat bigger animals than the short man? I suppose so, which is the way it should be. Which is the way it should be. <laughs> <laughs> Rightly so. Um, there's also an interest on the, on the subjects of um, pork as well and Jewish and, and Muslim rules around that. In, I mean, I've just been to Spain mm. um, and it is kind of impossible to imagine life in Spain without pork. No, absolutely not. Yeah. Like... It's everywhere. You're having ham on on toast for breakfast every <laughs> yes. morning. You're, it's just like, it's a very pork-heavy diet. Yeah. But um, in uh, after the uh, late 15th century and the Christian Reconquista, which mm. is where the Christians retook the land from in Iberia from the Muslims, Yeah. Um, the Inquisition published information telling Christians, like, this is how you can look out for people. Because lots of people converted, like, forced, yeah, converted forced conversion to, to Christianity. But they carried on practicing their own religion, you know, in private and stuff. And um, the Inquisition told Christians, like, they said, when you're at the market, look out for people that are buying olive oil. Because the typical thing, apparently, was to cook in pork lard. And obviously, <laughs> uh-huh. Jews and Muslims didn't want to do that. Right. And they said, you know, look out, have a look at what they're doing on a Friday. <laughs> Because if they're looking a bit too <laughs> religious on a Friday. Um, wow. Yeah, so. well, I mean, now nowadays in Spain, everyone's buying olive oil, left, right, exactly. centre. So exactly. what's the Inquisition going to say about that? Well, <laughs> thankfully, they're dead and buried. Um, yeah, what other uh, taboo meats are there? There's cat is obviously something we wouldn't eat here. No. The sales of cat meat um, were reported to have increased in Vietnam and Cambodia during the COVID-19 pandemic, owing to the meat's alleged antiviral properties, sold as Little Tiger. And the ground into a paste. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, there's also, well, I mean, bat meat, like, as I mentioned, horse meat. Mm. Um, I was interested to learn during my researches for this podcast that, um, because, again, we touched on horse meat in the previous episode. Yes, Findus. Findus. The, oh God, don't get me started. Bloody Findus. <laughs> um, but uh, there was, in 2013, so there, there, there have been occasional attempts to revive horse meat mm. as, a, as an industry. Uh, it's bigger in France, it, I believe. Start, it's massive in France, but in the yeah, UK. In the UK, okay. Um, yeah, it's, it's a, horse meat's an interesting example because it's a taboo in the UK, mm. but literally 20 miles away in France, it's just, it's not. Yeah. And there's no, it's... It's an interesting example of how we don't like until you question it, you don't really think about why certain things are taboo and mm. certain things aren't. And obviously, it's, there's an arbitrary element to it. Um, I'd love to give horse a try. Yeah, well, you probably have. Yeah. <laughs> um, there was a uh, a Welsh startup business in 2013 um, selling horse jerky by the name mm. of My Brittle Pony. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Sadly, seems to have vanished soon after its establishment. What, what year did you say? 20, 2013. 2013. Oh, they should give it another go. It's 10 years later. Um, there's also, supposedly, still goes on, um, cat meat being a thing in Switzerland. Mm. According to this Newsweek article um, from 2014, this is from, hundreds of thousands of people in Switzerland eat cat and dog meat, particularly at Christmas. According to this is according to an animal rights group called SOS Chats, which I believe is French for cats. Ah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Not Chats is pants. Uh, and yeah, they're according to this, according to founder and president of the group Tommy Tomek, three percent of Swiss people eat cat or dog meat. Eighty percent of them being farmers on purpose. Uh, or not? Yeah, it's, on it's not another Finder scandal. No, 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 on purpose. <laughs> the Lucerne happens in Jura and Bern areas are the main culprits. One woman gave me a recipe for cooking newborn cat. Tom X said, mm. "I went to the police, a veterinarian, and the government, and they all told me there was no law against it. So she's on a campaign to make it illegal. She says cat meat features prominently on Christmas menus in some parts of Switzerland. Dog meat is also used to dog meat is also used to make sausages." Mm. Um, I mean, there you go. Another interesting story about um, cat meat is after the Second World War, uh, the American GIs that were stationed in France uh, obviously 
wanted to eat, um, as you would being American. Um, and they uh, were fre- fed what they were, what the French told them was rabbit, um, roof rabbit. The French called it, um, and the Americans gulped it down uh, without realizing that you know all the rabbits had, had long gone and been eaten by the French during the, the occupation. They were actually eating cats. Um, right. There's a similar story of uh, Germany after the First World War. They were, everyone was eating dogs, but they. Uh, in order to not call it dog, they refer to it as blockade mutton. Yeah. There's a good tradition of euphemistic names mm. when it comes to eating meat, um, which is not necessarily considered well legal or acceptable or whatever. So um, in British-run Hong Kong, for example, eating dog meat was outlawed in 1950. But that didn't stop its surreptitious sale under euphemistic names, including free, just simply fragrant meat <laughs> and also hornless goat. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and supposedly uh, in supposedly in Iran mm. it's possible to find pork um, but it's sold on the name nightingale flesh which is quite nice yeah, it's quite nice yeah um, they should try blockade mutton it's a better name yeah blockade mutton is like <laughs> that's the kind of thing that like um, I feel like Joe Rogan would sell on his podcast mm, or the yeah. Or <laughs> yeah I only eat blockade mutton I only blockade mutton <laughs> Have you heard of the eating of the automan? No, tell me more. Um, So the automan is a small French songbird, Mm. um, which traditionally has been hunted, but it's now outlawed in France. Um, The reason mainly being because, um, I think partly concerns for its, you know, for the preservation of the species. Yeah. But also because there's been some controversy about the way that it's uh, presented. So the automan is traditionally drowned in Armagnac, Alive, obviously, and then drowned in, and roasted. Um, and then the diner eats the bird whole, um, bones and everything, mm. and the bones splinter in your mouth, cutting your gums. Um, it kind of adds to the slight kinkiness of proceedings. Um, and this uh, this practice was, stuck, was begun by a priest. Um, classic (laughs) and you also as you're doing it you hide you cover your head with a towel supposedly to hide your face from god oh wow um so it's a kind of form of uh i don't know performatively breaking being a bit transgressive in a slightly kind of lame way isn't it yeah like You'd only do it if someone was looking at you. Yeah, <laughs> you wouldn't do it at home. If you were in the sun at home, you probably wouldn't bother with the towel. Well, maybe that's not the sort of thing you eat at home. Like, maybe not, yeah. yeah. So special um, occasions. Yeah, without an audience, the whole thing is kind of rendered a bit futile. Reminds me of um, actually a Lebanese dish, asafir, uh, probably butchering that pronunciation as well. But very similar, obviously, they were French, uh, under the French mandate following First World War. Um, so I'm sure there's a lot of um, connection between mm-hmm. the two dishes. Um, but yeah, again, they get these very, very tiny birds, um, cook them whole. They don't do the whole uh, napkin over the head thing, right. um, but they do wrap them in some Lebanese flatbread, which, you know, Sounds as good. you would in Lebanon, yeah. um, and then munch them bones and all. Nice. And uh, I've not tried it, but I would love to. Yeah. 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 Sounds very good. Sounds great. Yeah. But this priest, um, who supposedly also came up with the idea of covering your head with a towel, it was a friend of um, the great food writer, in my turn now to butcher a French name, <laughs> Jean Antelme Brilla Savarine, who once said, Tell me what you eat, and I will tell you what you are. Ooh. On which note, there's a bit of an elephant in this room. As we talk about food taboos. Yeah. Uh, eating elephant is probably another taboo. No doubt. <laughs> yes. um, I think they are kosher, though. Oh, are they? Yeah. Okay, well, that's good, that's good to um, But the two of us have, a long time ago, mm. on our travels in Vietnam, um, ourselves broken a food taboo. Yes. At, at least a Western food taboo. Um, which is that we've eaten dog meat. Yes. In Hanoi, in Vietnam. Um, and now, first things first, because obviously lots of people will be, will be disgusted by that, probably. Um, but uh, there is completely um, valid things about the way that these, where this meat comes from in Vietnam. Right. Which I 
I mean, this is difficult reading for me, having looking at reading up on it now for this podcast. So the dogs are often pets, stolen Jesus. across the border in Thailand, kept in really bad conditions, and then they're killed in terrible ways, or either bludgeoned to death or having their throats slit. Um, which obviously we didn't know about that no. at the time. But we were kind of presented with this opportunity to try, like, do you want to try dog meat? And we, we were 18 at this point. I was 18, I think. So I think my appetite mainly at that stage was for strange anecdotes rather than, <laughs> rather than for That's anything. That's a good story so rather not, than ethics. Um, ethics or, yeah, so, you know, didn't even, the way that, the, where the meat had come from didn't even occur to no. me anyway. Um, so, but we had, but there's another reason why I wouldn't do it again. And that is that it just didn't taste very nice. It was it? rubbish, wasn't it? It was absolutely yeah. terrible. I don't know if we went to a bad dog restaurant and uh, we we were served well, up some, some rubbish. Yeah, she didn't cook it very well, but... It was, the way I'd describe it is like, it's kind of like pork, but uh, just not very nice. Stringy like pork almost, I thought. Pork. Old, tough pork. Very difficult to chew. We had it in a few, a few different ways, and this is going back nearly 15 years, so I'm struggling to remember exactly, but I think we had a sort of soup... And a just a bit of meat set on the side, yeah, and like grilled yeah, meat. It was, it was in it was in many forms, wasn't it? Yeah. it was like a platter of different ways. It was presented in different mm. ways. Um, yeah, and it's one of these things. Like you say, it may be that uh, it probably wasn't the most salubrious restaurant in no. the Red River Delta. <laughs> but um, there's, as we touched on last week, there's always these because we were thinking, so why do people eat this stuff? And it's always again. It's only men, it seems, in Vietnam. Mm. Um, and it was only men in this cafe that we were taken to. And again, they have this thing. They were saying, yeah, it's good for virility. It makes you strong. Or, makes you or strong. Make makes you, yeah. Uh, and it's good for your libido and all this. And yeah, you can't help but feel that, uh, that it's just a kind of I don't know, an excuse to eat this yeah strange meat because it's like well you're not eating it for the taste because it doesn't taste really it's rubbish yeah um there's way better food options in vietnam and hanoi than yeah dog restaurants i mean some of the best food in the world yeah um so maybe it's a marketing ploy by the dog meat industry to say to people it wouldn't be the first time that someone has said eat this or take this it'll make you yeah (laughs) well i i i took the liberty of assembling a small list of other things which (laughs) supposedly give you uh, stonking libido (laughs) They include ground tiger penis in China. Yeah. And that's obviously got a lot to answer for, conservation-wise. The warty and extremely poisonous glands of a bufo toad. That's from the West Indies. Um, A pint of baboon urine seasoned with soil and herbs and then poured onto your genitals. Okay, at least you have to eat it. (laughs) That's true, actually, yeah. Um, I was thinking drinking a... Pot, pint of baboon piss does but, not sound <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, speaking of Vietnam mm. on that same trip uh, we probably may have transgressed another food taboo a couple of taboos I think a couple which is certainly um, we ate a dish of rat yeah uh, which a lot of people would think would be disgusting but I, actually it was really nice i really loved rat and i think i have a feeling it was probably like jungle rat rather than urban rat yeah it, it had a good life yeah it's you know well it was a free, you know, range. free range rat but actually of all the kind of uh taboo and and you know not uh, strange foods i guess i've eaten over the years that one's really good and I, yeah. for me it tastes like barbecue chicken yeah yeah like really nice like obviously everyone says it tastes like chicken, but it really does. It taste tastes like, like chicken, but with barbecue sauce. Like yeah. That's important yeah, yeah, to get yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But must stress. <laughs> must stress. So it's like a white meat, but very flavoursome. Mm. And yeah, really, really nice. Yeah. Um, we also had, I think even at our same restaurant, uh, Snake. Mm. In like a South... Now, I've heard good things about Snake in a, like other contexts. Where yes. There's like a big meaty snake and you can yeah. actually cut some meat off it. A big... Uh, I've heard it's anaconda, like, yeah, you know, exactly. python, something that's got some, some meat on it. Yeah. I've heard that it's, uh, yeah, like a, there's like a slight sort of shellfish element to it, mm. like a fish element to it. But this one was such a thin fish that it was like a, a snake, sorry, that it was like, I don't even know, it was like a finger's width. It was more... The, the, a couple yeah, of the, fingers uh, width. No, 
I would say a finger's width. I think that's right. 50% of it was the central bone, the spine. Yeah, so they'd literally... It wasn't like... They hadn't cut meat off an animal. Yeah. They'd taken this whole animal and cut it into, like... Most like cal- calamari rings, but yeah. the whole snake. Yeah. With the, with the spine in the middle, yeah. Yeah. Um, and served it in, like, a salad. The, I think the skin was still on it as well. The skin was still on it. You chew the meat off this spine, and it was stringy and dry and... Disgusting, frankly. That was one of the worst ones, yeah. I think. And it wasn't... Um, you know, I wasn't sitting there... I mean, to be honest, the same thing with dog meat, mm. rat meat. Rat meat was nice, but the same thing with dog meat. I wasn't sitting there thinking, um, I'm transgressing a taboo. No. I'm just thinking, this tastes shit. Yes. Um, yeah, but I would love to try a bigger, meatier snake. That's yeah. the only reptile I've ever eaten as well. I don't know if you've ever eaten any other reptiles. No, never eaten any other um, reptiles. So I don't know what reptile tastes like in general. But actually, maybe... I tell a lie. I think I've eaten crocodile meat. Oh, yes. Actually, no, alligator. In fact, we, yeah, we, we, we eaten that. get a sausage, yeah. Yeah. haven't we? New Orleans. In New Orleans, yeah. Mm. Um, but I feel like that was quite... Um, because, I mean, it was a sausage and it was... Mm. It was mixed with sausage meat, I think that was as well. Right. I think we, I think it was pork and alligator together in and a sausage. It was, it was spiced like yeah. a sausage, yeah, so you exactly. kind of couldn't really taste. It wasn't the, the meat pure alligator. Yeah, mm. um, but yeah, there's definitely meatier reptiles out there. Like I don't know. Obviously, you couldn't eat a komodo dragon because they're endangered. Eat you first. <laughs> they're, they're eat you first. But I imagine something like that would have some meat on its bones. Yeah, would probably be all right to eat. Um, but yeah. I mean, that's probably the, the ultimate taboo, is eating an actual endangered, endangered species. That's something I wouldn't do. Well, yeah, it's interesting to get, like, um, not to dunk on Japan, who are mm. our great friends, but mm. they're an example of somewhere where they refuse to ban whale meat, yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, I think Iceland, I think I'm right in saying that Iceland had recently banned it because there was a big, again, it was a traditional food, it was like this fermented shark, they'd serve, they'd serve it in like traditional settings like festivals and stuff like that um but there was kind of a public outcry against it yeah. in recent years and i think they banned it now yeah so iceland norway and japan um are the only countries which still allow commercial whaling right. legally. um but iceland are going to make it illegal by 2024 um after a fall in demand apparently um so demand for it has, has dwindled and there's no, the fisheries minister said there's little proof there's any economic advantage to, to this Absolutely. activity. Good. So yeah, you're right. It's like the modern taboo is, mm. or should be at least, endangered species yeah. aren't, um, aren't going to be eaten anymore. Sadly, a big reason why a lot of species are endangered is because the opposite, there isn't a taboo about eating them no. <laughs> in lots of parts of the world, but um but even here, it's interesting that... Um, I th- so I think there was a lot of yeah public outcry in Iceland about eating um, whale meat. But uh, even so, the reason why they've decided to stop doing it is ultimately because, for economic reasons. So there's less of a yeah, demand... Yeah, it's not a taboo thing. It's a... Because we can't make any money from it. There's less of a demand for, for meat. And also, in Iceland... Wales have become, this article says, the stars of a flourishing ecotourism scene. So people go, pay money to go to Iceland and... To see whale, Wales, whale yeah. Um, more than 360,000 whale watchers flocked to the waters of the North Atlantic in 2019. So there you go. So I would say definitely don't eat dog meat in, certainly in the context that we did it in Hanoi in one of those restaurants. But because of the cruelty of the trade and the way that it's procured mm. um but obviously it's an interesting one because a lot of people um regardless of how, where the meat came from or how humanely it was because let's not forget the meat industry in general is not particularly no, absolutely humane. not but um you know it's the the issue of it being a dog and we have them as pets and it, we just don't eat it here even though it is eaten in a lot of cultures in yeah. the world it's so certainly from a from a cultural taboo point of view i don't think there's anything Terrible about eating dog versus eating, eating pork or cow. Or cow. Pig, pig, yeah. But certainly from an ethical point of view, in the situation that we had, it was yeah. bad. But then, so was probably the pork and the beef that we had over there as well. Yeah. And anyway, we can't be that bad mm. when you consider that some people indulge in the ultimate 
favourite food to do, which is, of course, eating human meat. Yes. Um, the world's deadliest game. Human. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've got a few. There's like historically, I mean, this has been going on since bloody day dot. Mm. Herodotus, who is not the most reliable, uh, the Greek historian, uh, he wrote about the Androphagi, a nation of cannibals who lived near Scythia, supposedly. Okay. Uh, could be true. Yeah. Could not. He said a lot of stuff. <laughs> um, there's in India, there's the Aghori, who are an ascetic sect. Uh, of monks who hang around in charnel grounds and they smear cremation ashes on their bodies. Um, they meditate on top of corpses. They drink from skull cups, as in human skull. Human skull cups. It's um, very metal, isn't it? It's very metal, yeah. <laughs> very, very metal. And they supposedly eat human flesh, although it's a difficult one to actually... I was trying to dig into whether this is actually true or not, and some of the things you read dispute that. Right. Because it's like every article you read about them, the headline is, the cannibal monks. Mm. Um, But they basically deliberately subvert taboos because they see taboo as like, and all these human cultural constructions as kind of distractions which get in the way of like, between us and the divine, Mm. or us and the way, our natural state. And so it's like an altered state of consciousness by deliberately subverting these taboos, which is quite interesting. Um, which And they're, they're in Varanasi in India, which where I've been, and it is like a place where, like, death is very close. Yes. All the time. Like, you see, like, you know, bodies, bodies burning on the river. carried through the streets into the river. Um, yeah. And supposedly it's out of the Ganges where they get these bodies that they supposedly eat. But, oh, no. So, so, so people have dropped their body off yeah. upstream. Yeah, so they, they, don't, they never kill people. No, but they the, someone um, someone's been like, okay... Dead relative, really sad. Just drop them upstream, yeah. Float them down, like you know, off to their next reincarnation, and then further down, these lads are getting it's the not, bodies. It's not good hygiene, is it? <laughs> eating them. Then even I mean, like fuming. even in much lesser kind of ingestion of the Ganges is <laughs> like when w- w- loads of people every day they go because obviously a very holy place. Mm. They go and they bathe in it and they drink the water from it because they believe that it's you know, spiritually cleansing. Yes. I remember I said to our guide in um, Varanasi, like, is it all right to drink this? And he was like, I mean, scientifically, absolutely <laughs> not. But, you know, you can do it if you want. I'm not going to stop you. I didn't do it. I just dipped right. my hand in it. I thought that was enough for me. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, there was, a, there was a CNN program, which was really controversial, where, where a few years ago, the host supposedly was filmed eating human brains with the agori. Jesus. Oh, <laughs> and it caused a big storm, you know, in America. Yeah. Kind of, understandably. But um, another place which has historically often been associated with cannibalism is Papua New Guinea. Mm, yes. Um, and so Papua New Guinea, you know, it's this massive section of the island of New Guinea. Loads of different, very mountainous, so it has loads of different tribes who are not even kind of they're remote from each other even, tribes, I think, yeah, let alone yeah. from the outside world um and there's an example so the the Uratmin people again probably butchering the pronunciation but they had a food taboo system where dogs couldn't be eaten um even to the point where if a dog had breathed on your food they wouldn't eat it wow they will however eat a human <laughs> normally in the context of war so it's and this is common i think with with this part of the world They'll, if they like warring tribes and stuff, they'll kill somebody or in an act of revenge or something, they'll kill somebody and then they eat them. And it's like, so there's another tribe called the the Coral Wai, who were still, they were said still to be eating human meat in the 21st century. Wow. Um, And again, it's it's usually as like a ritual act, but in their case, revenge for acts of witchcraft, perceived acts of witchcraft. So revenge for acts of witchcraft, someone's done a witchcraft against you, you've murdered the witch and you're eating them to kind of dispel the spell, basically. Exactly, it's that sort of thing, yeah. Yeah, So there was a journalist with the Smithsonian magazine when in, this was 2006, I think. Um, Get eaten? No, I don't think so. (laughs) Seems to have filed his copy. Oh. yeah, he says, in, in cannibal folklore, human flesh is said to be known as long pig because mm. of a similar taste. But then he says, he mentioned this to someone and he shook his head and said, no, it tastes like young cassowary, which I've also, you know, those massive birds. Oh, yeah. Which I've also never eaten. <laughs> but like an ostrich. If you're, coming from, ostrich I think. if you're coming from a Western perspective, maybe pig is closer. Like yeah, we, maybe. We wouldn't know what a cassowary no, tastes no, like, no. but we would know what a pig tastes like. Um, yeah. 
However, interestingly, anthropologists have suggested that the Korowai have given up cannibalism quite some time ago mm. as a result of, you know, contact with the outside world and stuff. Um, but they perpetuate the myth for tourists because it's what they want to hear. So Rupert yeah. Stash of the University of Chicago writes that the Korowai did previously practice ritual killings of suspected cannibal witches, which is how the reason why yeah. they killed them. Um which sometimes involved eating their flesh, but they've since given up the practice. Chris Ballard from Australian National University said that the people who have been shown this stuff, particularly for articles or TV shows, mm. were probably misled. And he said that the Korowai depend on the tourism trade. They've learned to say what rich foreigners want to hear. Most of them have 10 years' experience in feet, pun intended, probably feeding this stuff to tourists. <laughs> um Closer to home, mm. um, I was very interested to read about the uh, Canadian artist Rick Gibson. Never heard of him. Never heard of him either. But uh, he's like a performance artist. He did lots of stuff where, I think another thing he did was um, making earrings out of fetuses. Of course, you be like aborted. Let me look that up because <laughs> I don't want to slander the guy. <laughs> Rick Gibson. Yeah, another thing that he had done an earlier thing he had done this was 1984 um he was given two dehydrated human fetuses from an anatomy professor 10 weeks in development dehydrated for 20 years and he attached them as earrings to a female mannequin um that's hideous and he was expelled from goldsmiths college where he was studying and charged with causing a public nuisance and outraging public decency. Our, our friend of the show outraging public decency. he was found guilty fined 500 pounds um, interestingly, considering he was convicted for that, mm. uh, the most notorious thing that he did was in a year before that, um, before his conviction, in 1988, um, when he ate the flesh of another person in public. Jesus. In London. What? No. Um, because, that is close to home. <laughs> yeah. Because England does not have a specific law against cannibalism, that he, feels like an oversight. We should do a law on again, that. Again, sometimes you have these laws where you just, it probably doesn't occur to anyone. It's like, yeah. well, that's obviously illegal. <laughs> yeah. um, because England does not have a specific law against cannibalism, he legally ate a canopy of donated human tonsils in Walthamstow High Street. Tonsils as well. Tonsils can't be tasty. Like Tonsils are small, aren't they? Tonsils like, are small. And like, they'd be like, I'm sure like grisly or like weird. Like, you know, a bit of like... Thigh meat would be nice, At probably. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you may be interested. He did branch out a little bit. Right. A year later, in on the 15th of April 1989, he publicly ate a slice of human testicle in Lewisham High no. School. No. <laughs> Why? Why Lewisham? Hey, they say that High Street is dead. <laughs> Maybe right. High Street. <laughs> Lewisham, of all places. Um, when he tried to eat another slice of human testicle <laughs> at the Pitt International Galleries in Vancouver... Okay, at least he's gone home now. The police confiscated the <laughs> testicle hors d'oeuvre. <laughs> Where's he getting his testicles from, firstly? <laughs> yeah, I, I would be really interested to find out. Um, however, the charge of publicly exhibiting it was dropped and he finally ate the piece of human testicle on the steps of the Vancouver courthouse on t- the 22nd of September 1989. Well, yeah. Where is I he mean, now? <laughs> he's, he's still knocking about. Okay. He's age, and this is uh, always slightly... Sinister, mm. age seventy-one to seventy-two. That's exactly birth, not known. <laughs> um, he, well, yeah, clearly in his seventies, doesn't seem to be doing much of much. No, in twenty seventeen, he walked naked in front of the Vancouver law courts in the middle of winter to protest Canada's ban of genetic engineering of the human genome. So he's protesting the ban. So he wants genetic engineering. Right. Probably for his bloody art. For his art again. So yeah. he was in his forties basically when he was eating these these testicles. Like it's not like a punk, you know, he was in his, teenager. He was in his thirties. He was in his thirties. Yeah. Like a punk teenager, kind of twenty year old, like rock and roll. I'm going to do something mental. Like this was a man who'd lived like a pretty long life at that stage. It's like the and care- he decided to eat a bollock. It's like the KLF <laughs> burning a million pounds. Yeah, like, it's just like. I mean, I get it, and you're attention-seeking, yeah, but yeah. is it a great piece of art? I mean, obviously he did it because it's a taboo. Yeah. So he's deliberately tabooing taboos. He's deliberately 
Is it for attention? Is it for art? I think we know the answer. (laughs) (laughs) On the subject of fetuses, obviously, given that this artist, quotation marks, was uh, displaying fetuses as as an art piece, uh, a really interesting food taboo um, that I was uh, investigating is uh, something called cootie pie, which Mm. sounds like cutie pie, which is is strange, Mm. Uh, but it's like K-U-T-I-P-I. Um, and it's really popular apparently within the Anglo-Indian community yeah. and that could either be uh, descendants in, of, in, India. De- in India descendants right. of English people who are still living in India yeah. uh, or people who are kind of descendants of people who had mixed in uh, English and Indian marriages yeah. um, and it's this dish is goat fetus. Wow. Okay. Uh, presumably nicely spiced, curried. I'm sure. Um, a delicious nice sauce. Things, have it with some, some naan. Yeah. Um, but it's a real taboo and it doesn't really exist either in Indian culture or in English culture, obviously. Mm-hmm. This concept of eating an animal that's not been born. Um, yeah. And it's a taboo. You know, many, many cuisines. There's not really anywhere else where... Uh, that we know of where people consume an unborn animal yeah. apart from in this cootie pie mm-hmm. uh, goat fetus curry. Wow. Um, so they presumably they have to kill the pregnant mother and then take and then take Yeah, I would assume the assume the mother's being killed like they're not going to do a C-section and keep her alive are they? They're probably eating the eating the mother separately. I mean it's weird because it's like my initial reaction to that is is to be more disgusted than just killing an animal for meat, which is odd yeah. because it's the same thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's also um, the ballot egg in of course ballot in I think mm. in the Philippines, parts yeah. of Southeast Asia, where it's a fertilized egg. Mm. Um, I've never had it. I don't know if you. No, know. I've never had it, and um, what f- that freaks me out more because you're eating of kind of uh, certainly the older ones because you get like you know 10 days 20 days however many days aged egg and the fetus in the later stages is kind of almost fully formed and you're eating the feathers and the bones Mm. of the animal well i think i'm right in saying that the the most prized part of it is the crunch of the beak (laughs) (laughs) i would rather eat a goat fetus yeah, because it's then, like eating meat. Uh, because I don't want to eat a feather. I don't want to eat a beak. Mm. I just want meat. Fine, brilliant. Yeah. It's, if it tastes like meat, that's great. Um, interestingly, given what we were saying earlier about um, the Jewish dietary laws and the thing about whether lab-grown meat is kosher or not, mm. um, it was decided um, by that group of rabbis that lab-grown meat counted as, I think, I don't know, again, the pronunciation is probably wrong, but parve, I think it's pronounced, right. P-A-R-V-E, which is that it's considered neither meat nor dairy, therefore you can eat it. Um, cool. What so with meat sort of thing? So it's like so it's like um, it's not considered non-kosher. That's right. right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I don't know. It's a weird one. I mean, I would always think that that would be meat. I would yeah. Say, just because I it was, hasn't been born yet. Yeah, it's meat. Definitely. Particularly when if it's got a beak and yeah, if it's, it's, like fl- if it's got to be flesh born. and feathers and beak and bones yeah. like that is that's meat in my eyes. Yeah, I don't know. It's weird. The thing about like eating young because obviously, I mean, lamb is delicious, more delicious Veal. than mutton. Veal is delicious as yeah. well. But um, and there are limits to these things. <laughs> <laughs> an un yeah, an unborn egg is a is a bit much. And also, it can't be. I suppose, well, I was going to say it can't be cost-effective. There's, a, I guess, an argument that if you kill the pregnant animal, you're getting the meat from that two, animal. Two for the price of one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Buy one, get one but free. Also, you know, that the unborn animal could grow up to be a source of... Further protein down the line. Yeah, and yeah. wool and yeah. milk or whatever. Yeah. So, yeah. There's, often these things, there is a sense that people just do stuff for the sake of it. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, for the sake of being a bit weird. Yeah, just for so a story. That's food to booze for you. Um, on which note, maybe we should say goodbye for this week. Um, goodbye. But we should say as well at this point, because we we forget to say it every week, um, if you've enjoyed, please like, subscribe, follow, whatever it is on your 
podcast platform. Share with your friends and family. Share with your friends and family and leave a review, a good review that is, please, because that helps a lot as well. Um, so yeah, thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye! Bye. Bye.